to the extent that I'm going to order the MRI on the patient and you are going to as well, but we're seeing the same patient, we might not need to order the MRI twice, right? So I think you get communication and I think you get coordination. And those things, I think, reduce redundancy, streamline the care, and frankly, make for a better experience of care, right? If I was the patient and Peter and Caleb both ordered this test on me, I'd be like, why is this happening? We have a word for that. It's called fragmentation, right? So I think all of that is what the payment models address. Hey everyone, and welcome to this episode of Leading the Rounds, where we look to inspire physician leaders through conversations about personal growth, leadership education, and health systems literacy. As always, if you like what we're doing, check out our social media pages and leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. You can also support us now on Patreon. In today's interview, we speak with Dr. Joshua Lau. Dr. Lau is a board-certified internal medicine physician and associate professor at the University of Washington School of Medicine, where he is also the associate chair for health systems and the medical director of payment strategy. He is a national expert in healthcare payment and delivery policy. Dr. Lau's scholarship focuses on how systems of financing and delivering care can work together with human behavior to affect health outcomes. He has now published 200 plus articles, including over 150 peer-reviewed medical journals, such as the New England Journal of Medicine, The Lancet, the Journal of American Medical Association. His ideas have also appeared in outlets such as the Washington Post, Forbes, the Boston Globe, the New York Times, NPR, and The Hill. We hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Joshua Lau, where we discuss health system science and physician payment models. Welcome to Leading the Rounds. Hey everyone, and welcome to this episode of Leading the Rounds. We have a very informative and exciting episode in store for today, but Caleb, I wanted to check in with you because I feel like we haven't spoken in a while, but how was last week for you? I think you guys had a shelf or something. No shelf, but change rotations again this week. So I'll be on cardiology for the next two weeks, which I'm really excited about. Uh, One of the things I'm interested in, uh, my favorite organ system. So really excited to learn and to be with a new team and get started. Great. I I think it's funny because I've all of our listeners are going to get to, if they watched everything chronologically, they'll get to see the exact order with which you did uh, your rotations. Right. <laughs> and you'll get to like maybe map out your, uh, your, your, the trend in your personality as, as your rotation. There right? you go. Right. Yeah. Whether I'm yeah. happy or sleep deprived and tired or what. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so today we have Josh Liao though. Okay. I don't know about you, but I'm excited for this one. Josh, how are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me on. Um, so I wanted to start off this conversation because I noticed that you, um, you've had a, a master's of science. And so I wanted to ask, was that, a, was that a master's of science? Did you do your work in like basic biology or chemistry or something? Actually quite the opposite. I actually did it in health systems policy and care delivery. Okay. Well, that answers my question because I was going to ask, how did you get mixed up in a health system science? Yeah, I, I, I got a, I got so mixed <laughs> up in it. I got a degree in it basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So but given that, why don't you tell us a little bit about your role as an, the Associate Chair of Health Systems and Medical Director of Payment Strategy then? Sure. Yeah. So I, I think um, kind of use that that framework of the hats I wear. I wear a few different ones. So um, most importantly, I'm a practicing doc here at the University of Washington in Seattle. Um, I see general medicine patients in that setting. 
Um, when I uh, kind of take that hat off, another one that I wear is um, I'm a medical director for payment strategy for our health system. And so the health system in this setting means, um, you know, our hospitals and our clinic networks, primary care, subspecialty care, et cetera. Um, and so I'm fortunate to be an enterprise level medical director focused on how do we pay for care? And we can get into it, but I think it relates a lot to health systems. Uh, the third thing that I do is, uh, as you mentioned, um, I'm the associate chair for health systems in the Department of Medicine, which is our biggest department in the School of Medicine here at UW. And um, in that role, really are fortunate and fortunate to work with a bunch of people on all the things we're going to touch on today, I think. So how do you teach it? How do you learn it? How do you make a career out of it? How do you make a career studying it, doing it? Um, being around it. So uh, that's the third. And the final thing that I, I do is um, kind of what I'll call a, a research and evaluation hat, where um, I co-lead a body of work where we try to drive some of that evidence. So we try to drive that evidence and then translate it to state policymakers, federal policymakers to really help take data and drive insight uh, to lead to better policy and practice. So in your role as uh, director of health systems, when you're teaching, what are some of the things that you're teaching to students and where is this in, incorporated into the curriculum at UW? Yeah, so um, I'd say predominantly I, I, I teach um, in the clinical setting these days, but I would say, you know, systems um, is often kind of framed as health system science, right, which is defined a few different ways, but the way I define it um, is the science pieces, the study and the understanding of the health systems pieces, you know, how we pay for, organize, deliver care, and how people experience the care. So kind of putting that together, I think about anything that I teach that is helping people understand and draw insight about how we finance healthcare, how we organize and deliver health services, and how people experience that, and then what those outcomes are. Uh, I teach that in a number of different ways. Um, I think the most kind of implicitly and on an ongoing basis is when I'm working with students and, and other learners, like clinically, you're seeing this all the time, actually. If you put the lens on and you have it to see, you'll see a lot of things that we do in clinical care that if you take that, that thread and you pull on it far enough, it goes back to health systems issues, right? Care models, payment arrangements, et cetera. So that's probably the most um, kind of um, consistent way that I do it. Since you are an educator in this stuff, could you give us a little bit of a breakdown of some of the history surrounding physician payment models and maybe how in your time as a clinician, these changing models have affected the way that you uh, put your lens on or your, the lens that you have, so to say, in the clinic? Yeah, yeah of course. So I think, um, <clears throat> I think the biggest thing I would say is that um, healthcare is hyper-local in many different ways. And it turns out in some ways payment is like that as well. So you know, if you were to say, what is the way that physicians and hospitals and clinics and physician practices are paid, you won't find the one. Right, there are multiple ways, and so any group or individual is probably paid in a number of different ways, and then regions, right, um, and um, urban areas are paid different than rural areas, and the northwest and the southeast, etc. So, I think it's inherently complicated. But if I kind of abstract from that, what are the major trends? I think it's fair to say that a predominant way we've paid for healthcare has been this thing called fee for service, which we I think are familiar with. But essentially, it the name says it all. You get paid. You, there's a fee for the service. And so fewer services, fewer fees, fewer payment, and then more services, there's more payment. Um, and I'd say the, the larger trend over the last decade, um, at longer, but really in the last decade has been this move towards paying for value. So we can talk about what that means, but essentially rather than paying more for more services, paying more for better outcomes, better quality outcomes, more cost-conscious outcomes. 
Um, and that's probably the biggest change uh, in my career. So where are we along that spectrum? I know we've had a couple of people on the podcast historically that have talked about pay for value and, but in reality, how close are we to transitioning and what do you see as a tipping point to move to more pay for value? Yeah, it's a great question. So let me just preface this by saying, I, um, you know, as somebody who spends a lot of time thinking about paying for care in a way that helps address quality, equity, cost consciousness, there is no perfect payment system, right? It sounds so obvious for me to say that, but it's worth saying um, that I think sometimes we think of fee-for-service as being a problem. And I think there are many problems with it, but, you know, fill in the blank alternative. I don't think a hundred percent of that necessarily is risk-free. There's there's always an unattended or unanticipated consequence of that. So when I think about tipping points, again, think about um, tipping points, plural, and um, it's not clear to me we have to go 100% away or 100% for. And we actually have a balanced conversation about ways in which, you know, fee-for-service, there are certain things that might be better than other payment approaches. So with that said, um, where are we? I, I think, again, this very local. There are places where it's just, you know, toe in the water. I think there are places where there's a lot more coverage um, and we can get into that, but depends on, you know, where you are in the U S I think. So give us a couple examples. Where, what's, where are some of the places that you know, that are um, maybe more pay for value and where are some places that are fee for service completely? And, and why yeah. do you think so? Yeah. I'm going to, so you can hold me to this. You can make me flip it back. I want to flip this question a little bit okay. and say, and say that um, often these payment things occur through payers, right? Or purchasers, the who's okay. doing the paying. And so if you kind of, instead of thinking about where, think about like the whom here, you know, Medicare has been uh, a big leader in pay for value, right? And particularly Medicare fee for service, but also what we call Medicare Advantage, right? So um, both kind of books of business there. And, and that covers everybody, right? Medicare individuals here in Seattle, you know, in Boston where I trained, in Philadelphia where I worked, and so in that way, it's everywhere. And then you can find other payers that have comparatively fewer, right? There um, have not been as, um, they have not been such leaders or even following into the pay for value space. And some of that's by virtual region. So for instance, you have things like Blue Cross Blue Shield plans, which are local by definition. And then you have large national payers. So there's at the risk of saying, oh, it's complicated. What I mean is I think about it more as which payers or purchasers are really driving value and which ones aren't rather than like where the people are. Because in any one place, if you have a lot of Medicare beneficiaries and fewer commercial beneficiaries or vice versa, you know, things change. And given that, do you think it's better that in these different regions, we have different systems because maybe it addresses some of the economic challenges in these regions. And then along those lines, do you think that moving towards one specific sort of payment system or health system is going to solve most of the problems? Or do you think that this is something that'll constantly be in flux in an ongoing conversation in the field? Yeah. Well, I didn't bring my crystal ball with me today. So thanks for that easy, easy question. <laughs> um, uh, but um, you know, I think, um, I think that it will always be dynamic, um, to some degree. And, uh, do I think it's good that there are different models? I think so. Like I'll give, I'll give you a very simple example. I mean, the things that I think Medicare is, is focused on appropriately is the care of older adults in this country. Um, as well as, you know, individuals with say 
renal disease and a few specific cases. Um, so, you know, by definition, they don't really have a lot of maternity care, right? But like Medicaid ensures a lot of women that can get pregnant and, and have children. And so then it becomes very important. So is like, is it good or bad to have a model for older adults and their care needs as opposed to pregnant women or younger individuals who might have fewer and more infrequent events, but trauma, burn, the kind of rare cancer. I mean, those are just different contours of the care they need. And so I think actually different approaches is probably good. Um, and then the other reason I think it's going to be in flux for a while is that I think there's something implicitly in this idea of pay for value, which is that we do too much of certain things in healthcare. And I don't want to say that's wrong. I just want to acknowledge though, that the types of care that might be too much from a bird's eye view, if you zoom in, there are certain groups, often historically marginalized ones for which that care may be too little, right? So is kind of our goal on block here just to, you know, change care for everybody. I think we need to be careful about that. So there are multiple reasons, but those are two, I think, that we'll see things continue to be in flux. One of the reasons that I think having multiple care models at the same time would be beneficial is that you could compare outcomes along those care lines. So has there been that so far? Have we seen studies that have shown that pay for value does give better care for a lower price? Yeah. So um, the answer is yes, with the caveat, which is, I mean, this, this is my career's work partially, which is comparing these programs to say fee for service, right? The comparator group, so to speak. And there is evidence. Uh, this evidence may not knock your socks off, right? It's not going to address Medicare insolvency on its own. And there definitely misses and then there are wins, but I would say we have to think about it in a few different ways. The first is, um, these payment models are one solution, right? But there are other things out there, like how we pay for pharmaceuticals and the stakeholders involved in that, um, how we price healthcare services, access and coverage, right? And then the repercussions of not having broad access and coverage that all come together, right? If you change out fee-for-service for accountable care organization, that was never the silver bullet on its own. I don't think any payment model will be, but together, I think multiple things gets us there. The other thing is like, I think sometimes pay for value is thought of as like better care, lower cost, right? And that's like an incredibly, if you can capture that, I think it's awesome. You know, um, if I could get a better car for less money, I mean, I, I, I take that any day of the week, right? But like at, after you get through that proverbial fat, right? You find those things that we do a lot of for like no reason. And you, you call that out. After, after a while, we have to come up and face this issue of like better care costs more right? That's how that stuff works. Um, the world works. And, and I, so I think what I, what I would hope all of us, students, residents, fellows, practicing docs, what we avoid is the idea we say pay for value is where I can just like thread the needle, better quality, lower cost done, because there will come a day, I think, where we'll have to say that's higher quality, but it's also more money. And how should we then spend that money? And I think we should be prepared for that conversation. You, so you're saying that that pay for values is consistently outperforming fee for service with the caveat in some situations, and this is what your life's work is, right? I, I, I'm saying the the contemporary models I study are very promising, but none okay. of them are like the thing to solve the problem, and there are problems with the models as well. So, so I think it's worth continuing to go forward. So to challenge you a little bit, then, Please. not that I already haven't been doing that, 
Um, if, if better care costs more money, you recently started talking about how advancing equity through alternative payment models um, is a viable way to address some of the concerns that, that have been brought to light recently by the pandemic, by Black Lives Matter. Um, so how, how is that possible if, if we're trying to provide better care at a lower cost for traditionally marginalized people who have less access to resources? Yeah. So let me just say before I, I keep going, this is a great question. And this is the type of thing that if we took this thoughtfulness rigor to thinking about all issues in health system science and probably medicine, I think we as a community would be better off. I think what we're really putting our finger on, I want to call it out here, right, mm -hmm. Peter and Caleb, is we're talking about how something that just comes off the just rattles off, you know, like pay for value, value is good, high value, <laughs> we can argue that. If you really think about it, it's incredibly, um, it's incredibly, there are these tensions that are in it, right? And I think it's worth working through so that people and communities are not hurt by policy that fails to consider them. And you're pushing on one of them, and I'm glad you are. So what I mean by that is that value to me is a concept that's big enough to accommodate this idea that higher quality care costs more. The question is, what's the quality you're getting for the cost, right? Um, and that's the real idea of value is that you can get a higher quality X or Y or Z. Um, if you get the quality a lot of quality outsized benefit for the cost, that's still worth it, right? We shouldn't be reticent to spend money on paying for things if it increased costs, if the health and quality benefits outstrip it. And if, and here's the key, historically, by not paying for it, it is actually created disparities. And I think that's the key is that we have a payment system that has, we have longstanding disparities. I'm not the first one to say it. Um, it's just decades and decades of experience here, unfortunately. And if we don't right the wrong, then th it just continues. It will just continue, right? And, and I think one of the subtle ways it happens is this very question of, well, then how can we do this thing? I think we can, but we do acknowledge we value is paying for value doesn't mean not paying for stuff. It means just paying for stuff we get a lot of kind of bang for the proverbial buck out of, right? And in those groups where we've like missed the mark historically, we really re need to redouble efforts to do that. And I think that's achievable. So where does pay for value start? Does it start with hospitals and how they bill or does it start with insurance companies or does it start with, you mentioned Medicaid, Medicare and Medicaid earlier. Yeah. And I see how Medicare can force hospitals to charge and bill a different way in order for them to reimburse. So, so maybe that in itself is showing where it starts, but what do you think about where the transition starts? Yeah. I don't, I don't see it as a linear thing as maybe that's my, what my comments make it clear. And I think as a result of that, I think there's not like the point, but um, I think each stakeholder ha has a or multiple levers that they can pull, right? So um, if you are a purchaser that's big enough, yeah, you can negotiate rates in a way, right? That, that drives down prices. Um, but the opposite is true. If you're you know, an organization that delivers healthcare and you're large, right? You're large in your region, you provide a services others don't, you can negotiate the other way, right? Um, are there inefficiencies on all sides that we can like kind of squeeze out of a system? I think so. So I, I often see it as like, we need to kind of, uh, kind of address it from multiple directions. Um, and frankly, one without the others, I don't think works very well. Um, you know, to your point, Caleb, about Medicare, you know, think about how many purchases are like Medicare. And what I mean by that is like in every market in America, with that market share? Not many, right? 
any. And, and I think even then we've had some challenges getting people engaged in this pay for value uh, framework. So I think we need to be really cautious about kind of identifying what the, the solution is. Do you think it's a governmental solution or do you think it's more of a free market solution? Well, I think what you see with the ACA is that those are, can be one and the same, right? That a governmental solution can lead to a market solution. And again, um, I think no system is perfect, right? But it gets back to um, those of us who care a lot about policy, I think we often are hoping for the policy that can we pull the lever and then we get the benefit. But the truth is, you know, there's always challenges with any policy. So it has to be layered. I can't see a governmental solution with no market reverberation or response or, you know, co-implementation um, and vice versa. I wanted to go back a little bit to something you just, you, uh, you mentioned in my previous question, which was... Mm-hmm. Value is a big enough word. How do you define value? I feel like that's a simple question, but I, I want to make sure that everybody's on the same page here. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a critical one, um, critical question. So people will vary in how they define it. Um, on one end, there are people who say value is, depends on who you ask, right? Value is in the eye of the beholder and who you ask, whatever value is to them, that's value. It's um, kind of phenomenological in that way. Um, on the other end, people kind of define it in an equation, right? It's often termed a value equation, where value, roughly speaking, equals quality over cost, right? So you can have two things, a car for $2 divided by $2, great value. Uh, for a million dollars, probably not great value. Um, and so that's how they think about it. Then the question is in that numerator, what is quality? I feel like we're going down a rabbit hole, right? But, you know, then it's like, what is quality? Clinical quality patient reported outcomes, you know, experience of care, disability, functional status, utilization, et cetera. So by definition, it houses this issue of cost and quality at least, right? And then there's things that we don't measure in that. Um, my point with this equity issue and why I think it's big enough is that I actually think if you're trying to get quality for cost, implicitly, there's this thing about we're trying to get the biggest bang for our buck, right? The best quality for the dollar spent. But the equity focus to me is a little different, which is like, do we get the most even bang for our buck? Meaning are all different groups of people, right? Getting the same benefit. But because if we find that in general, there is greater quality, but it's just certain groups that are benefiting and others don't, are we okay with that, right? Mm -hmm. And it's that element that hasn't made its way into, I think, the value conversation as much as I'd like it to. Sorry, are you saying that the quality is your the, the goal is to have the quality be the same, the numerator, or is it the, is the goal to have the value the same? Because I feel like those the subtle distinction that could sway the conversation one way or the other. Yeah, I, I, I they're to me they're pretty they're pretty aligned. What I'm talking about is having the value be the same, mm-hmm. um, because if two groups of people get the same quality care, but one pays a lot more for it, I don't know that that's like where we want to be, right? right. Um, and vice versa. So I'm talking about value. However, if you zoom in and think about the quality movement, all the people thinking about, we need to address disparities in quality. Ah, no disagreements there. What I'm saying is, if you don't then divide, if you don't take the, the, mm-hmm. the quotient and look at the denominator, you're missing something, right? Particularly at a time where, you know, I don't need to tell you both this, but bankruptcy and healthcare costs, right? That to me is a travesty. And so that spending piece is really important. 
I think when a lot of non-physicians and people who are in healthcare think about why healthcare is so expensive, it's sad, but I think they often think that doctors and physicians and surgeons are just making exuberant amounts of money when in all actuality, the system just squeezes so much money out that, you know, physicians aren't making, they make a good living, but they also have to go to school for years and, and pay off thousands and thousands of dollars in loans. So when you look to pay for value, does that work towards the solution of removing kind of those middlemen and, and getting rid of the waste we see? Yeah. Um, so this, by the way, let me just circle back to saying one of the key components of health system science is systems thinking, right? And Caleb, what you're articulating is kind of that is like taking the lens to see the system and how it contributes to outcomes, not just like individuals writing a medication or wielding a scalpel, right? Um, important, I think, but other things important too. Um, I think it's two things. I think what the payment models do is they try to cut out redundancy um, and um, things that potential conflicting. So for example, um, to the extent that I'm going to order the MRI on the patient and you are going to as well, but we're seeing the same patient, we might not need to order the MRI twice, right? I, so I think you get communication and I think you get coordination. And those things, I think, reduce redundancy, streamline the care, and frankly, make for a better experience of care, right? If I was the patient and Peter and Caleb both ordered this test on me, I'd be like, why is this happening? We have a word for that. It's called fragmentation, right? So I think all of that is what the payment models address. And what you're talking about is something that goes beyond the payment models, which is what is, for example, the administrative costs of administering healthcare. Um, what about pharmacy benefit managers that mediate pharmaceuticals, right? And healthcare organizations. And that's outside of payment models, but it goes back to my point. I think we, we need to work on all of that at the same time. And that actually is systems thinking. Like the moment you realize there are these bigger forces and then there are forces within care delivery models. And then there are forces at the, what I'll call the, point of care where doctors are deciding, you know, medication A or B, that's system thinking. So if we go even deeper into like under a pay for value system, how does a physician get paid then? So instead of, you know, getting paid for generating revenue, how does a physician then get paid under a pay for value system? Um, in well-designed systems and arrangements, they get paid for the outcomes, right? So um, it's not that you performed four surgeries, it's that the surgeries you performed didn't have complications or your admission rate was low or the pain or functional status was um, better than others or better than yours was before, right? So it really seeks to incentivize thinking about what do I need to do? Everything I need to do, not more and not less to get the best outcome. Now that's easy to say. I think we are still nascent in a lot of areas of medicine around evidence, right? So I like to talk about evidence-based medicine. There's a lot of medicine that's kind of evidence-free. And I think that becomes a challenge when you say, well, what's the right thing? If I take away the care here, or I add the care back, or I do this, or I don't do that, how does it affect outcomes? Yeah, we don't have, I think, the data we'd love in every part of medicine, but aspirationally, what these payment models try to do is to say, I want to reward doctors and their organizations for good outcomes. I feel like one of the challenges to, sorry, Caleb. No, but, you're good. <laughs> I feel like one of the challenges in pay for value is the define, definition of what, what is quality. And I, my impression is that it's very different in different fields of medicine. So if you compare something like internal medicine or surgery to something like palliative care, how do you use 
I guess whose whose role is it then to define what is quality? What are, what are the out, the ideal outcomes in that situation? And then how can you incentivize doctors at a, for lack of a better term, equitable level, so that you're not having you know doctor disparities and you're you're not you're not driving more, um, I guess, you're not driving medical students and residents to go into specific specialties because they're more amenable to a comfier lifestyle and a pay for value environment because one has been because you can't identify like a good a good measure for quality in one um what and especially that they might be more interested in does that make sense sorry i kind of rambled on that one no i think it i think it does i mean by the way again we're, we're wrapping our arms on this very big thing right mm -hmm. and you know it's taken me years and years and years to just start chipping away at it right so this is like and spoiler alert, I don't think this is going to go away in the next mm -hmm. couple of decades. The, the, the conversation will evolve, but so I think part of what you're just, you're trying to touch on is like, what are all the facets of this thing? Yeah, there are many of them. Um, I, so I think historically, it's fair to say most of the metrics defining quality have been around primary care, prevention, screening, um, um, uh, vaccination cancer things, uh, A1C, that type of stuff. Then there's this other side of like, you know, mortality or morbidity, which is like very ultimate by its definition. And there's all this stuff in between, right? In the prevention world to the kind of therapeutic world, to restorative care, to palliative care that we don't have those measures. So I think you're, to just answer you directly, I think we don't have those. And I think it's, it's not possible to have a a value-based framework without quality in the numerator as part of that. So I think we need that. Um, as to like how that leads, you know, students and residents to pick specialties, I think that's a bit different. And I want to go back to what Caleb said in answering your question, Peter, which is that how are people paid? You know, one of the um, key parts of these arrangements is that um, the, the payment mechanism in some ways in many of these models is agnostic to how the physicians are paid. And what I mean by that is that a hospital or a group could get into a program and say, we'll, we'll accept this new way of paying for healthcare, but we downstream, will just keep paying our doctors the same way they've always been paid business as usual, or we can change how they're paid, right? We can then transmit whatever mechanism. So you, instead of a, a fee for every service, you're going to give us a fixed amount. We'll transfer that down to our doctors, right? Completely. Some of it's like a mix. It's like, you know, 80% business as usual, 20%, it's different. You can, you can kind of bake in incentives. That's when you get into kind of, I think the, the model design. But I wanna say that that I think will dictate how people, how students think about their careers as well, right? And that I think will also change. And if you look at surgical specialties dating back now, let me do some counting, four or five decades, <laughs> the way they were paid and the way they're paid now are not the same, right? Um, so I think you'll continue to see that in the next 10, 20 years. We talked about equities earlier and, and now about outcomes. And one of the knocks on pay for value is that potentially if you're being paid for positive outcomes, you may have an incentive to choose patients that will give you positive outcomes. Mm -hmm. So how, how is a system, do we, how do we create a system that doesn't then just incentivize physicians to choose healthy patients who are probably going to do well instead of the minorities and, and other people who potentially could have worse outcomes or could have worse health results. Yeah. So um, what you're describing, some of us 
uh, would call selection, right? So there's patient selection that happens. Um, selection is not limited, by the way, to pay for value. It just happens to be yep. the place I think it's like, you know, being showcased. Um, and and, and I, I will say like, and you can, I'm sure, um, agree with this, is that even in fee-for-service, there is selection. Physicians choose, there are physicians who don't take patients under Medicare or, you know, Medicaid because they pay out less than private mm-hmm. insurance. So it's not mm-hmm. unique to pay for value. That's right. And I think it's important to recognize that, that if we get to pay for value or we avoid a complete, we've not solved anything like with, with that specific step, right? Um, but I think you're, the steps of the type of selection could vary. So let me just give a very simple stylized example. Um, you know, the kind of, often people think of the opposite of fee-for-service as what we call capitation. So by the name is a fee fixed for per capita, per head, right, per person. Um, one of the concerns with that is, is um, skimping or stinting on care, right? So I get paid X dollars to take care of Caleb for a year, whatever Caleb uses, right? Is there no incentive to, you don't need that. I'm not going to give you that. So there, there is that, that component to it. Or Caleb says, do I need surgery? And I think, mm-hmm. do you really need surgery? Right. As opposed to under fee for service, certain uh, clinicians may actually be more willing to take a risk. Now there's no value statement there. I'm not saying that that is good or bad. I'm saying that's just a spectrum, right? We need to be comfortable with. To get back to your question about selection, it's ever present. It's a knock on value-based payment. Yes. Um, you know, there's a there's an ongoing movement um, to consider what we call mandatory models, right? Yeesh, sounds really bad, mandatory <laughs> models. You think about all the things we have to do in healthcare, right? I don't know many doctors that go. I mean, maybe they wish they had wrote fewer notes, but you're not like, what? It's like my notes optional. You just you do it, you know. And uh, we have mandatory programs around readmissions, right? We want to reduce readmissions. It's just like in the culture now. Um, but there was a day that that wasn't didn't exist, and so. I think just being uh, cognizant that there are things that we do now, we don't even question it, that at the time were very contentious. What people are talking about now are mandatory models. So an example from my work would be, we think that in some cases, joint replacement procedure, getting your knee or your hip replaced, um, it could be more cost conscious and high value. Um, When you let hospitals select to choose to get in or not, it turns out what actually early evidence is showing is that there's a selection effect that the kinds of doctors and hospitals that get into these payment models are different than the ones that don't and the communities they serve are different, right? Um, So one thought has been, why don't we then make it mandatory? So in the whole city or this whole geographic area, everybody's gotta be in it. And in fact, that's happened. So I'm in Seattle and in 2016, Medicare rolled out a program around joint replacement surgery. And they said, everyone in this county, King County, as well as 60, 66 other ones in the country have to be in this program. So we didn't have a choice, right? And you can work through the tensions there. But my point, Caleb, is that if you make models mandatory, then at least theoretically, you would worry about less selection. That doesn't mean that doesn't exist. You need to study it, someone like me. <laughs> but, but that's one way to get around the issue of selection under VBP. Isn't it interesting how a lot of the, the public health like we're seeing it now with the COVID vaccine and making it mandatory places, right? Something that's great for public health, just the word mandatory or the word, you know, you have to just like makes people skin crawl. Like, even if it's the right thing to do. I I think that's 
if you believe in selection and you believe that choice drives selection, and just to bring it back to that other point, you believe that existing situations for decades have been inequitable along many dimensions. Yes, you're right. Like when you say mandate, oh, but you have to remember like the alternative to a mandate is not like nirvana and like perfection. The alternative to the, the mandate is like what you can, what has always been, right? And if you think that that arc of that line is not good, you need to change it. So I agree that mandates by its own concept will sometimes like make people resist. Um, but that's why it's important to dig down underneath all of this stuff, to question the real sacred posture, to think about what are we really talking about and should we do these things, right? And what, where it really comes out is, should we have a mandatory model? That's one solution. It's not the only one, but it's worth talking about. And these types of conversations, I think, help us get closer to having a, to me, a thoughtful discourse about it. So from this conversation, I wanted to ask, has your view of what will happen next changed at all? Like, Have we maybe sparked a new idea in your head that you wanted to share with us about what the future might look like in, in the way the health systems are being shaped? Yeah. So, you know, um, I'm, a, I, I'm a pretty simple guy. So what I, what I think about some of this stuff is, uh, you know, that I think, you know, payment is not the only motivation. Uh, I'm fortunate to be a general internist. Lots of my friends who do primary care and hospital medicine, you know, they don't like get up thinking like, okay, I'm going to counsel this person about depression or you go out of my way to do diabetes management because, I'm going to get this 5% incentive. Like, it's not going through their head. There is something to be said about compassion, empathy, mission, vocation. Um, there's also something to be said, by the way, about feeling like you're a professional, right? That you are delivering good care and you're doing right by your community, that you're practicing guidelines-based medicine. None of that is money. That said, and I think the, the, the lack of considering that is like to our detriment, we're just like money machines. You need to put something in, crank a lever and something comes out. That said, my point would just be payment is a powerful motivator. And I think um, it's a major one. I think it colors a lot of what we see. I, I think that where we're going next, um, I hope, um, and I'd love to work to contribute is like a place where, um, you know, when we say value and when we say payment, we're always thinking about how do we make it equitable so that the gains we make, we're bringing as many people along as, as we can and um, not creating more disparity. I think if we do that, the rest, I think, you know, is really important, but we can sort it out. I think if we don't do that, it just entrenches existing systems um, in, a, in a really bad way. So what can new physician leaders and medical trainees do to kind of spur this along and to make, start to make change? Yeah. Yeah, this is probably not something, you know, uh, students and other learners wake up and say, well, I'm just going to think about the stuff that the three of us have been talking about. I'd say a few things. Um, and this is reflected in my own experience, the experience of colleagues, mentors, mentees. Um, the earlier your, your mind turns on to these issues, the better. I, I make no assumption that everyone's going to take a career turn like I did, you know, or get mixed up in this to use Peter's term. But I think the earlier you are cognizant that this is the culture, that this is the environment that you're in, I think the better you'll be as an operator, as a contributor, as a change maker. And so I'd say, you know, what can people do? It's to lean into the health system science, right? Um, I think it is often thought of as like the third pillar now of, of medical education and, you know, not being the curricular expert in general, I believe it's really important. 
I don't think everyone needs to get into the nitty gritty of what we talked about, but having a general sense of these are the major things of payment. This is how it colors what I'm going to see on my rotation, what I'm going to see on my sub eye, how people pick specialties. Um, after picking a specialty, how they pick the side of practice, right? Or how they don't, how they negotiate their contract, how happy they are because the pressures, right, that they get in their practice, all the things are wrapped up in it. So I think just at a kind of like a foundational level, the earlier you get this, I think the more thoughtful choices you can make for a career. And that's saying a lot. And then the second thing is like, you know, if you're in a position at all to be an educator, a medical director, a clinic, you know, lead, a CMO somewhere, chief medical officer, right? If you're ever in that position, you will be better equipped if you've understood some of the things that we're talking about today, even if not in depth, at kind of a foundational level. I will say, Josh, I did learn a lot today. And I love the way that you think about health systems. It's it's surprisingly simple, but deep in the way that you describe a lot of these things. And it was very impactful for my own edification. We like to end our conversations with some book suggestions from our the leaders that we bring into our show. So if you have any book suggestions for our listeners and myself and Caleb to help us get a better understanding of health systems or also spur along our leadership development, we'd love to hear them. Yeah. So I think, listen, there are a lot of um, great resources out there. Uh, I'm happy to share a list after as well about, um, you know, um, our health system, what's broken about it, how do we, uh, et cetera. Um, you know, I think that there are fewer books about how to fix it. Uh, there's a, one by a colleague of mine, Vivian Lee, called The Long Fix, um, that I think, you know, articulates one path to getting there. Recognizing your your reader, your listeners, you know, and your audience here, I'll say I think it's actually there's um, a relative dearth of material that does that that does two things that does the that foundational teaching, but then then brings it to like the clinical context. What I mean by that, um, there are lots of resources out there about um, after you learn the pathophysiology of heart failure, then you can take a cases book, right? Or do a module or there's like a gamification or some simulation where you're seeing somebody with heart failure, you do X or do Y, this is what happens to them. It brings that to life, right? As you go into the, into the, the wards and onto your rotations, I actually have a hard time thinking about things in health systems that do that. There are resources that give you foundational knowledge, right? And there's like kind of out in the field stuff that people, if you hung out with me and you could tolerate it, right. You would learn, <laughs> but the stuff in the middle, like, how do I take those concepts? I read about Medicaid and Medicare. What does it look like on my cardiology rotation? What, how does it show up in my OB gyne rotation? Actually, there's very little of that. And candidly, I, I hope there's more. I, I hope we see more of that. Um, and that, you know, maybe in a future conversation, I can report back about it. But we'd love to have you back for a future conversation. Yeah, this is great. Thank you, Josh. Really appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading the Rounds. We hope you learned something new or got a thought you can reflect on to further your own leadership development. If you like our content, please subscribe and follow. We work to put out a new episode every other week. You can also connect with us on social media on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Leading the Rounds, or email us at leadingtherounds at gmail.com. See you next time on Leading the Rounds. Mm -hmm.